0: Good evening, everybody. I'm very glad to see you all here this evening. Um, We're extremely glad to have um, Lord Hattersley, Roy Hattersley, with us tonight to talk about his latest book, which deals with, I would regard as the rather enigmatic character of David Lloyd George. A lot of interesting questions to be asked about him, and I think it's a very interesting look at a difficult period in British political history, as well as a very interesting approach to looking at the social and um, political implications of the kind of background Lloyd George came from and the world into which he went as a politician. Um, Roy Hattersley, as you will all know, um, has a stunning career as a politician and as an author. He was in the House of Commons as an MP for 30 years and is now in the House of Lords. Um, But he's also been a prolific journalist and a very prolific writer with some 20 books to his name. Um, And the latest on Lloyd George, which has already had a lot of um, reviews in the newspapers, is a particularly interesting addition I think to his oeuvre but we look forward to hearing from him Um, he'll speak for about half an hour and then we'll have questions and he will be signing copies of his book outside in the hall at the end of the session here thank you thank you very much
1: I want to speak from here rather than behind the rafters I've had a single way. disadvantage think that you can't hear me. Uh, i can with this. Those of you who are old enough to remember will think of me as Frankie Vaughan when I speak like this, <laughs> but I'll do my best to make myself heard even without it. I'm absolutely determined not to use any of the electronic devices. But if you have a problem, just go. I'll be mildly humiliated and use the microphone. Well, George, the basic facts speak for themselves. A member of the House of Commons for 55 years. A member of the government for 16, six of which were as Prime Minister. Continue a period in the government if you discount the half day in which you pretended to resign in order to force absolute resignation. And within those periods, doing quite extraordinary things, extraordinary in their nature, extraordinary in their quality. Let, let's begin by thinking of how we entered the House of Commons, the young black veterans and immediately demonstrates the streak of rebellion which remained with him throughout his career. He arrives at the House of Commons to see Scott's parliamentary companion describing him as a Welsh Liberal MP, which is a perfectly reasonable description since he's won the by-election as a Liberal. He crosses it out and puts in his place Welsh MP supporting those parts of the Liberal programme which are radical, <laughs> and, and this willingness to define for himself what he is and where he's going remains with him for his entire political career. When he's able to do it, he subtees. When he fails in being his own man, he's not the man we hope him to be and see him as when we think of his best moments. But he attempts always to plough his own furrow. He then becomes a spectacular by pension. First of all by trying to create an independent Welsh party which would behave towards the British government, the Imperial government in the Imperial Parliament as the Irish party behaves, blackmailing the liberal majority to do things for Wales. He gets the title of the Welsh Parnell, and though he fails in mobilising Welsh opinion, he then becomes what I think must be the most rebellious, or most successfully rebellious, member of Parliament in history. Rebels normally become extremely respectable. Normally the rebel views are turned to those of the establishment, and Aaron Bevan, Michael Foote, Neil Kimmett, all in the end fell in line with the established position. Twice in his young career, Lloyd George converted the party to the position over which he rebelled. First of all, over the Boer War. Without him, the Liberal Imperialists would have supported the Boer War neck and crop. But by the end of the Boer War, the entire party had fallen into line behind Lloyd George. And secondly, over the, in, the bill which was going to extend education the 1902 Education Act. In fact, the 1902 Education Act is a good act. It provides improvements in all our schools, all schools in England and Wales, but it provides them through the egress of the Church of England. And Lord George is therefore opposed to the act because of what he thinks it does in terms of Methodism, suppressing the Methodist instinct, making well children, Baptists and Methodists schools where the basic idea is the established church. And again, he converts the Liberal Party to his rebellious point of view. With these successor behind him, it, it was absolutely inevitable that he joined the cabinet when Atwick had a great Liberal majority, great Liberal landslide. And he becomes president of the Board of Trade, surprising almost everybody <coughs> by his application, his efficiency, and the sheer professionalism that really does what were then regarded as humdrum pieces of business. Business about uh, extending London docks. Business about all the regulations of trade which are the Board of Trade's responsibilities. The principal line is increased while he is President at the Board of Trade to make mariners safer than they previously were. These things which are not the spectacular part of politics but in many ways the most important part of politics, to everybody's really surprise, Lloyd George excelled at them. And in every generation. When Captain Bannon dies and Asquith succeeds him as Prime Minister, Lloyd George is the only feasible candidate to become Chancellor of But he can't simply accept this success without somehow playing the rules according to his own judgment. You may remember that when Asquith succeeded to the Supreme the King was in Barish and the King Hector the didn't think coming home to England for such a trivial event as a new Prime Minister, a new Cabinet, justified his breaking his holiday. So Asquith went to him, and wrote Tom Barrett's, to Lloyd George, saying it was his intention to appoint him Chancellor of the Exchequer, but he did keep it secret, because the King had not yet approved the appointment. In every Inevitably, Lloyd George leaks it to the newspapers just to make sure that they king can't retail <laughs> this one. And one of the examples of Lloyd George behaving in a way which resulted in a reputation which followed him to the grave that he wasn't trustworthy. Nicholson said of him, at his cradle, the good fairy said to him, we offer you every benefit and every justification and every virtue except one. And the bad fairy said, the one is that you will never be trusted. And that became almost the keynote of Lloyd George's reputation as a man rather than a politician. It's very much exacerbated by the events of 1916. In 1915, he in fact brokers the coalition which, as with less, the Tory-liberal coalition to fight the war. And he plays a noble part in that coalition. And I think noble is a perfectly reasonable way to describe it. He's Chancellor of the Exchequer, holding one of the great offices of state, but he agrees will effectively be demoted to become Minister of Munitions because the armament industry is in chaos, and he believes he's the only man who can set it right. He sets it right by an innovation, which has now gone to extremes, bringing in outside advisors, men from industry, technocrats who could tell the politicians how to run the armament industry. More importantly, could tell the Germans how to run the armament industry. Not that the uh, generals, not that the generals were all that concerned with these matters, <laughs> though commander in chief, and then Secretary of State of War, became very concerned about the loss of armaments, shortage of guns and ammunition, after the Battle of Lunes. And talking to Asquith, he said, the casualties have been appalling, and the rate of ammunition loss has been even worse. I don't mind so much the men and they can be replaced. It's around the ammunition that's worrying. Well. And George began to replace the ground of ammunition and inevitably make this major contribution to the war before he became Prime in 1916. Now, the December 1916 is a period when the effects of the war are beginning to soak into the British consciousness. It's nearly six months after the Battle of the Somme, not in itself a defeat, but a tragedy in so much as so many men were killed and the Battle of Somme represents all the people worry about in the First World War. What they worry about, if they know about it, is Bill Marshal Haig's tactic or strategy. It's not the war of attrition, which is sometimes described as. It's not just men sitting in trenches and firing at each other till they're dead. Bill Marshal Haig was a cavalry officer who believed in the big breakthrough. Forces would be a mass at one part of the line. It would be a great strike. The German line would dissolve. The British or Allied forces, the Imperial forces, would search through and would destroy the enemy from the rear. The only problem with this is that it never works. Time after time, the big breakthrough was planned, and time after time, the big breakthrough failed and turned into the war of a Lloyd George wants to change this before he becomes Prime Minister. And there's a general feeling in the government that something's wrong, a feeling in Parliament that something's wrong, without necessarily subscribing to Lord George's diagnosis. And it's because of the general feeling that something's wrong that they need a dynamic man to put it right, that Lloyd George himself is able to usurp Asquith as Prime Minister and become the leader of the nation in December 1960. But inevitably, this has consequences. It has consequences in terms of the Asquith supporters, who never have and never would forgive Lloyd George for deposing their chief. It has consequences for the Liberal Party, half of which chose not to join the coalition. Suddenly Lloyd George in 1916 has become a Liberal Prime Minister leading a coalition which is basically Tory. And he leads it, as all coalitions have led, on terms set down by the majority party. The majority party, the Tories, say they'll serve in the Lloyd George coalition as long as he makes three specific promises. The first is not to include Winston Churchill in his cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) Winston Churchill had been a Liberal moved into the Tory party. And he's unforgiven for that act of apostasy. The second is not to have Lord Northlip at the camera. This is a wholly reasonable demand, because, because Lord Northlip is crazy. Lord Northlip of his head. Lord Northlip is about being assassinated. When the editor of the Times, newspaper he owns, goes to see him in Paris, he says that the assassins are on their way revolver from under his <coughs> bed clothes and shoots his dressing gown hanging on the door. Certainly <laughs> will not have him in the <laughs> The third requirement is that Field Marshal A shall remain commander-in-chief, come what may. So well Lord, Lord George is desperately anxious to change the strategy by changing the commander-in-chief, he never feels able to do that and he never feels able to countermand his orders. It's then during that period when he's Prime Minister. We would see the great contrast between the two Lloyd Georges. The Lloyd George who becomes the man who won the war, in heavy inverted commas, excelled for his virtues by the British people. Quite a different man in operation. The Lloyd George who was the Chancellor of Czech. the Exchequer. The Lloyd George who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, following his own star, doing what he believed to be right for doing what he believed was necessary. Is a man of great power and determination, and a man of great charisma. Who operates in a quite different way from the time when these hands are tied. In those years when he's Chancellor of the Exchequer, it becomes what my book says, without any doubt, I affirm without the slightest hesitation, makes him the great radical of British political history, beginning with the introduction of the old age pension. The old age pension was introduced by Mr. Asquith. Mr. Asquith had been Chancellor of the Exchequer before he became Prime Minister became Prime Minister a month before the budget was due to be uh, uh, delivered. So he actually makes the announcement. But the old age pension is Lloyd George's achievement. It's Lloyd George's achievement because he's been arguing for it for ten years. As a young back pension, he argues for the pension. No. As a young back when he's a great, admirer of Joseph Chamberlain. What he likes about the Chamberlain is the Chamber has been arguing for the old age pension since 1870. Mr. Asquith I only accept the idea of old age pension when he needs to engrave his himself in terms the Labour Party. The Labour Party is needed to both deliver votes in the House of Commons, the TUC in Hull, a call for an old age veteran, and actually agreed to do it to buy off the Labour Party opposition. But Lord George wants it, and has an enthusiasm for it, which enables him to drive the bill through the House of Commons, it enables him to raise the money in the House of Commons, and prompts him, even as he announces the details of the old age veteran, to say, this is only a beginning. He announces there and then there's going to be invalidity insurance, which is the sort of health service, and there's going to be unemployment insurance, which is sort of social security. Those three things are the hallmark of a period of the exchequer, and those are the three things which begin to mock him out before the war as a great radical figure. joined to that, the fact that he leads the fight against the House of Lords, the House of Lords was going to hold back these reforms. Lloyd George is the manner push pushes after it, into fighting against the House of Lords and having the double general election ensures the House of Lords comes to heel, and his radical credentials are there without doubt. And it's worthwhile, before we talk of his decline after the war, to think of how it came about, that he was this man who was so successful when he was able to do what he wished to do, but really failed when he felt his hands would tied behind his back. It's all, in my view, to do with his love he was born in a little village in Wales called Camestonwick. I might say the great achievement of writing this biography over three years, I've learned how to call Camestonwick, and I'll without the like slightest doubt or inefficiency. Did I say he was born there? That's quite wrong, he was born in Manchester. Um, I'm afraid the book begins, and I apologise for any Welsh men and women who are here, it begins with a sentence, the most famous Welshman of all time was born in Manchester. <laughs> um, his father died when he was barely a year old and was moved from to Fram, moved from Manchester to live with his uncle in his tiny Welsh village. His uncle was the cobbler, but rather more important than being a cobbler, he was also a minister of the Camberlite church. The Camberlites were an extreme, I hope that's not an offensive term, extreme form of Baptists. They <coughs> believed with great piety in the canons of the Baptist religion, total immersion, constant prayer, not only were they extreme in their religion, but they were extreme in their views about Welsh education and Welsh culture. He was brought up to be a native Welshman who believed in Wales and things Welsh. And he was also brought up to believe that he was a member of a minority. The village in which he lived, indeed, the county in which he lived, near the two towns in which he eventually became a solicitor, pretty as being largest, had a majority of non-conformists living there. But they felt in a minority because they were dominated by English opinion and English politics. The land was owned by the English, the churches conformed to the English rituals, and the schools taught according to the canons of the established church. And not only were the entire non-conformist population minorities in their own opinion, but the Camillites felt themselves to be a minority within a minority. But most important of all, Some minorities think of themselves as inferior to the rest. Some minorities think of themselves as superior. And the Campbellites, and Lloyd George in particular, believed that they were chosen people, a superior group who were different because they were better than the people around them. And this idea is encouraged within Lloyd George by the most extraordinary coincidence, and if that's the right word, there may be more than coincidence, of people throughout his life were prepared to sacrifice themselves on his behalf. First of all, his uncle who brought him up, who devoted his entire life to educating Lloyd George, who uh, taught himself Latin. So he could Lord Lloyd George enough Latin to pass the intermediate exam for the Law Society. Spent all his money and his time looking after David. Regarded David as the chosen one. When David's young brother comes, both of them members of the George family, uh, David gets the name Lloyd hibernated. But David doesn't get that at all. It's, but Richard doesn't get that at all. His debut was the special one. And Uncle Richard is only the first of a whole series of people who encourage his belief in George George that he's hugely special and that his specialty requires them to make sacrifices on his behalf. Number two is Richard, his brother himself, who becomes a that In most ways, he's rather superior to David Lloyd George. He gets a first class pass in his law Society examination. David Lloyd George got a third. He's industrious. He doesn't change women, and we'll come to that in a minute. Lloyd George (laughs) is a And he just worked in the solicitor's office. And for many years he keeps Lloyd George when he was an unpaid member of Parliament. He keeps Lloyd George, Mrs. Lloyd George, Lord George's children, Lord George's mother, his own wife. Entirely devoted to Lloyd George's great glory and proud and pleased to be so. The third. Person prepared to devote herself to Lloyd George is Mrs. Lloyd George, George, Margaret, who we married just before the by-election, who knows almost from the words go that he's a philanthropist. But nevertheless, accepts this, tolerates this, turns up on public occasions when he's required to do so, helps fight by elections when he's too busy to be there. He says, Help me in every particular, and bears the burdens which we expect. Both partners in a marriage to bear with equal equanimity. The great example is when Lloyd George's daughter, Mayor, dies. dies in hideous circumstances. She has an appendicitis. And uh, Edward VII had just had an uh, appendicitis operation. Operated on the dining room table, if that's the right description, in Buckingham Palace. The first time there was an appendicitis operation performed, and Edward VII survived. Well, when Mayor has an appendicitis, the same thing happened to her. She's operated on in the dining room table and she dies. And Mrs. Lloyd George comes to the firm conclusion that the important thing is to save her husband from any suffering. So David Lloyd George stays in his ministry while she makes all the funeral arrangements, while she makes all the plans to take the body back to Wales. While she does all those things which are necessary when a young woman has died, while she grieves virtually alone take the body back to Wales, and avoid George in a spectral train, followed it two days later in time for the funeral. Now, I might say when he got there, he thought the funeral of the was unsatisfactory. So two months later, he insisted on his daughter being disinterred and buried in knee with better grave. But nobody ever thought of this as intolerable conduct. He's a spectral man for whom special things have to be done. And finally, he finds the woman who, above all, sacrificed herself for it. Woman who became Mistress is not a word. The book about her written by her granddaughter is called More than Mistress. A woman who becomes his private secretary and becomes virtually his second wife. Living with him in secret in London, while his real wife is living in Wales, and living with him in secret for nearly 30 years, going to an extraordinary extreme to keep her relationship private. To such an extreme that he is prepared to marry. The station master in quicker in a bogus marriage to prove that there's nothing going on between her and Lord George. All these people prepared to devote themselves entirely to it. And he accepts this as part of his natural rights, as part of the natural order of things, because he is so special. Now, I think in many ways he was strange. He wasn't a man of great personal principles, which was a man of limited, but very political principles. What he said about unemployment. What he said about invalidity insurance, what he said about the pension, were part of the only real philosophy he possessed, which was that the balance of advantage needs to be changed between the well off and the poor. And and as an early protagonist of the view, that the best way to redistribute income was to provide welfare for the poor, financed by taxes for the rich. It's perfectly true, as the Times about him, that he always looked as if he was more sure of what he was against. Than what he was for. And that's in part because of his other great attribute, which I contributed to the admiration of the him, his rhetorical ability. He obsessed by his speaking spoken words. Um, he says in his old age that he always hated going to chapel except for the sermon, when he was moved by the quality of the oratory. And there's many examples of his life when he hears and hears a speech, the content of which he deeply deplores. But he nevertheless is attracted by the speech of the speecher just because of the quality. When he goes to sit the second part of the Law Society of he calls in the House of Commons, and here's Lord Randolph Churchill attacking Gladster. Blackstone at that point his hero. He didn't remain his hero for very long, but he was his hero at that time. And he writes in his diary that he was the attacking Torridor. He couldn't help admiring the quality of the attack. Right at the end of his life, he's speaking in the House of Commons, on a coal bill, in supporting the idea that the subsidy should be removed from the coal industry and the miners have to take a cut in wages well too bad. When a young new member of Parliament called the Naran Bavan interrupted him and said memorably, better expensive coal than cheap violence. And Lloyd George almost collapsed by being punctured, the balloon of his own self-centered concern being punctured by this Marvel speaks about the wit. And if you look at the handsome, you, you find he apologises to an Iron Boven five or six times over the speech over. He's taken by the idea of speech. And he has this great capacity for speaking in a way which entrances in audiences. But he also has helped in damaging his reputation. Because he was unable to speak in a way which anybody here or anyone in this country today would describe as moderate. His speaking mode was attacked. His great speech defending the pension and raising money for the pension was made in Lighthouse. And that in itself was pretty violent. And That was prepared, and he was trying to moderate his language. There was an overflow meeting outside afterwards when he spoke off the top badly. And he spoke for the House of Lords with a peroration which every newspaper in the country denounced. He said to his audience, without you I can do nothing. With you I can drive them before me like chap. Now, um, I'm rather opposed to the House of Lords, um, and I want to see it abolished. Uh, but I know very well that if I promise to drive it in like chair, this wouldn't help the cause at all, it would damage the cause. And the dozens of Lloyd George speeches would have exactly that effect, particularly when he's talking about the advantage and the privilege, particularly when he's talking about dukes. Um, there's an occasion when dukes are opposing a church reform bill, and he picked out five dukes Devonshire, Rutland, Newcastle, two more, and looked at their history, and said all their money comes from the Dislucan monasteries. And pointing at them, he says they robbed the poor, they robbed the altars, they robbed the art houses, they robbed the church, and now they come here with their hands dripping with the wax of sanctity. They're <laughs> a marvellous friends. But he doesn't win any friends amongst the people you're trying to confirm. <laughs> Even when he tends to have a certain type of wit in it. Uh, at the time of the raising money for the pension, he was also raising money for a ship programme, the Dreadnought programme. We want eight and we want weight. And he said to the House of Commons, a fully armed duke costs more than the Dreadnought, lasts longer and is twice as dangerous. <laughs> this sort of speech caused great events, even in Edwardian and Georgian England. The Prime Minister reasoned with him him not to alienate people who support the Mrs. <coughs> <is> Prime Minister, <laughs> Mrs. Asquith wrote him a most admonitory letter, saying, please do not appeal to the lowest element in your audience whenever you speak. Even the King admonished it. The King sent him a note saying, you want me to come to Cardiff if you open the docks. i will only do that if you begin to behave with a propriety appropriate to one of my ministers. But Lord George can't help going on the offensive. And this is fine when he's carrying all before it. When he's the dominant radical in room is the chancellor making the world a better place for the poor mental living. doesn't work so well when he's dominated by other members of the coalition, and when he's overwhelmed by the coalition, who won't let him do what he wants to do. And this, I fear, is the story of his last 30 years. He becomes a man won the war, in, as I say, in his first Commons. He becomes the first man to receive a standing ovation in the House of Commons. A matter of interest, for those of you who are interested in these curiosities, Tony Blair was second when he gave up the premiership. <laughs> 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 um, they so stand and applaud him as he leaves the chamber and goes to St. Martins, uh, to St. Martins for a service of thanksgiving to the kitchen. And then he got to take, though it already taken to his mind, The Great decision From 1916 to 1918, he had led the coalition which is easy in wartime, because the ideological difficulties don't protrude. All you're doing is winning the war, so you won't worry about whether we promise to do something else or whether we want to do this domestic thing and just win the war. Before 1918, he had great system. He is no party. The liberals have been split, and both liberals have abandoned him because he's led the Tory, dominated coalition. So can either gone on the benches and remain in obscurity, he's left his life, or he can lead a coalition party into the general election in 1918. And that is exactly what he does. Rather than give up, rather than retire, rather than leave politics, perfectly understandably, though wrongly in my view, he leaves the coalition party and wins a last by of the general election and finds that even worse than the two years of the war, his hands are tied. First of all, they're tied over the Versailles Peace Treaty. Actually, the Paris Peace Treaty, but politicians mean what they have asked. Having done the negotiations with Paris, then moved to Versailles to make the declaration. here. Uh, he wants a lot more the them to and he's eventually signed. Admittedly, he starts off taking a tough line, but many wiser voices, including John Maynard Keynes, convinced him that it's foolish to cripple the German economy, and foolish to produce a feeling of resentment in Germany, which will certainly result in the Germans rising again under some demagogue and fighting another war who well, would want to modify the peace treaty. But on the point of arguing for modification, he gets a letter from three of the Tories, of whom he depends, saying, Didn't one of your ministers promise to squeeze Germany till the pit squeezed? That's exactly what you've got to do. A great program for post war redevelopment, land fit for heroes to live in, housing program, is abandoned when the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Austin Chagrey, says that the country can't afford it. An austerity budget. And the strategy, also the reduction in income tax from £6 to, to £5 yeah. Every time Lloyd George explains to, explain to one great issue which he believe is frustrated by the Tory majority coalition. And there may be some of you who draw parallels between that and other coalitions we've heard of more recently. <laughs> and certainly what is very clear is the party with the most members in the House of Commons dominates both the policies and perhaps more importantly how the coalition ends. So in 1922, the coalition decided, or the most members of the coalition have decided, that Lloyd George is not only expendable, but he's becoming a liability. At that very famous meeting in the Carlton Club, he is deposed. Uh, By a speech from a man who was hardly heard of at the time, Mr. Stanley Baldwin, President of the Board of Trade, who refers to what uh, F.E. Smith had said about Lloyd George. Uh, F.E. Smith said, we must keep Lloyd George as a dynamic force. Mr. Baldwin, which God is rather dull stick, gets up and says, heavy has called him a dynamic force. And this is true. And what a terrible thing a dynamic force is. He has destroyed the Liberal Party and he will destroy us as well. And they decide to dump him and he's out in the cold for the rest of his life. Now two things have to be said about the rest of the life. The first is he begins to principles when he's on his own here and can do what he chooses. He would say what he wants to say. And he becomes the great hate. He becomes a man who is advocating all sorts of public works as counter ways of using unemployment yeah. and ending the song. He's also casting about for a, for a political role. He tried to reform the Liberal Party. He leads the Liberal Party. George Lansbury, with what right and uh, I, and on actually he suggested that he became the leader of the Liberal Party. But he had far more sense than to take on that. <laughs> 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 and we get to 1940, and the war and his famous <coughs> Windsor church is in power, and it ends, the right of Lord George called with the hope that he might play some small part in the new world which going can be created when the Nazis were defeated. In fact. He of He's offered the ambassadorship in Washington, which he has a sense of refuge. And he goes home, not to Wales, but to Surrey. Because by this time, he's a very bogus well, He likes the idea of Wales, but he doesn't have to go there very often. <laughs> um, he goes to Surrey and contemplates his life living with uh, his Secretary until he hears his wife is dying in Wales moment when he hears she's dying. He had one of those moments which are embedded in very and in a sense typifies his entire political and personal career. Although he's neglected this scandalously, he feels he's got to see her before she dies. And he goes to Wales, as far as he can go by railway trains, in the worst winter for 20 years. And the people of Wales hear that he can't get through to see the dying wife. So for 20 miles and five villages, a local Methodist minister, the garage proprietor, the farmer come out and with picks and shovels clear the road so Lord George could get to the that to see his direct wife. She died before he got uh, her. Sub- and he makes the subsequent problem of the and returns to London two years later to marry his secretary. And perhaps the last words on that tribute is spoken by her from Town Hall and his putative daughter, in my view certainly his daughter, Mrs. Jennifer Longford, uh, told me that she was there when her father, about this time, counted Lloyd George, and Lloyd George came back from the Carnarvon Town Hall having an a bus. And he turned to his second wife and said, I didn't like that bus, it made me look lecherous. <laughs> and his second wife said, but you were lecherous. And in a sense, that's the other thing the follows thing. It must be my last word and my least important word about poet George. He has this extraordinary reputation personally, which is contained within the small circle in which he operates. And reputation for being financially disreputable. Uh, and eventually, he invents a gold mine in South America. He suffered from a single problem of not having any gold. Mm-hmm. And he's selling his shares in the gold mine five years after he knows he's no gold there. We then go to the Marconi scandal, which is not went it, but he sells on us in the 1920s. He invented the order of the empire to sell, and he sells on us absolutely legally. I mean, there's a letter circulated which reads exactly like one of those advertisements for furniture on Sunday night television. <laughs> It says there are only three left this summer, if you don't take up work now you'll we'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> <laughs> it happens later. And as well as the financial disreputable reputation, it was an extraordinary reputation this one. It is not just a public wife in Wales <coughs> and the private wife in London, but innumerable affairs. Affairs that began when he was a very young man, according to his son, his biilection when was in his early twenties, his prejudice by a lady turning up and saying, I'm pregnant and both George is my child's father. The lady being bought off by the World circle And continually from then on affairs, wrote to them, they wrote to him, he kept the letters, five read them, some of them poignant, some of them bitter, some of them pathetic, some of them romantic, and somehow always getting away with it. Getting away with it I think because he believed himself to be a special person. Getting away with it because he didn't believe the rules applied to him. And that's why the subtitle of the book is The Great Outsider. Because whilst he enjoyed the good things of life, whilst he bought a Rolls Royce which he kept secret from his competition, and whilst he liked to go on holidays paid for by a rich businessmen, uh, he never actually felt <coughs> part of his family. He always felt different from the other people. And different than the other people because he made up his own rules. He made up his own rules in his private life, and he made up his own rules in his public life. I think that would help to make him the great radical. also helped to make him a great policy for any standards. It also helps to stand in the way of his reputation. In this sense, my book demonstrates it. My book is the first proper biography of Lloyd George complete from birth to death to be written in the last 50 years. Winston Churchill, who is a comparable figure, and he was a brother to the about once every three months. But Lloyd late moved out of our psyche because there's a residual feeling of something wrong with there was something wrong with him. And was something wrong with him was he couldn't play by the rules. And playing by the rules in this establishment society is very important if you want your reputation to be crystal clear and crystal clear to the end. But none of that diminishes your real achievement. I repeat, he was a great radical British history. And what he did as Chancellor checker is incomparable in terms of making this country a better place to live in a big clap the right budget and they
0: do about it is adequate thank you thank you very much indeed um i think you've set out for us admirably what a what a Extraordinary mixture of a man, Lloyd George was. Um, I'm sure there are lots and lots of questions about him because, although Roy has whizzed across the substance of a very large biography, there are many angles and many areas to Lloyd George which I think it would be very interesting to explore in the next um, few few minutes. We've got about 20 minutes to go. So, are there questions, please? Yes, do. Yes, there's a mic coming round.
1: Thank you. Um, how, how much responsibility do you think Lloyd George has got for the uh, split in the Liberal Party? And was there ever any serious chance after you know, the mid-twenties that he could, could have pulled them together again? Do you want,
0: or three, do you want to answer each
1: 2 I'll take that one because it's very important. Um, I don't know if you've heard at the back, but the gentleman asked me how much responsibility Lloyd George has for the split. And I the demise, or the temporary demise, of the Liberal Party and whether there's any chance of reforming. Well, I think what Lloyd George did was precipitate the end. Uh, Many of you would have read a book called The Strange Death of Liberal England, which I think is a very poor book. It has great advantage of having a good title. It's not like a good title would make a poor book seem better than it is. And Liberal England didn't die. Liberal England transmogrified into the radical wing of the Labour Party. Um, The Labour Party was on its way up, and Lloyd George knew it. You'll see if you read the book that he's constantly worried about the Liberal Party which he thinks is going to compete for the radical vote And very much of his party has moved over to that. The, the weeks, the remainder weeks, the Remain weeks. I mean, Aswith was basically a week. Gray was basically a week. Morley was sometimes a week but very often a radical. I mean, They were out of their time. Radical spiritism was out of its time. And therefore the Liberal Party was already declining by the time he... A remedy to split it in 1916. But he, have, he, by splitting it, precipitated his head. But as I say, I think the coalition would have itself made sure that the Liberal Party had died had there not been the senior, more important factors which were undermining it over a longer period. Because the minor party of the coalition, which is what it was, even though it was led by Liberal, the Liberals were a minor party. When the coalition comes to an end, they're putting in the an impossible position. They can do one of two things. They can amalgamate with a major party, which is extinction a one sort of, or they can fight an election by saying, Well, we were part of the coalition. But now we're different and we want to tell you where the coalition went wrong. We want to tell you how we got things wrong. We want to disentangle this. Which is impossible for this year to be it. I don't propose to take very much part in the twenty fourteen German elections. But if I have any influence on anybody, I shall suggest that there's a slogan which says, if you want a Conservative government, go liberal. Uh, this seems to me to be an irresistible thing for a political party to say all those things were created by the coalition so i think the coalition made it inevitable that the decline in the liberal party which was a much longer period was going to accelerate and become permanent. and what permanent? and imperfect and the liberal party remains influential but nevertheless a minority party if i can't see any change in that coming out now or ever we will take a group of time. okay fine
0: now. yeah um yes would you and then you yeah
1: do you think Lloyd George acted like a dictator? Well, I think we need the microphone. I think we need the
0: microphone, yeah. Um,
1: here. This is when I have to make my confession. I wear hearing aids, and they're the state-of-the-art hearing aids, which my doctor said to me, just as we were worn by President Clinton, they won't make you hearing any better, but they'll make you irresistible to 18-year-old girls. <laughs> so you have to shout. Do you think Lloyd George acted like a dictator? That
0: again. Do you think Lord George acted like a dictator? Yes,
1: um, we're going we to take three times. Yes, let's do that.
0: Yeah, if you'd like to, and then one at the back. Thank you. Um, women got the vote in 1918. Uh, how, what role did Lord George play in in getting in that happening? Thank you very much. And just one more at the back here for this group. Thank you. How long would uh, Lloyd George last as a modern politician?
1: Well, uh, to take them one by one. First of all, he certainly was a dictator. Um, certainly he was a dictator during the war, uh, or tried to be a dictator during the war, though a dictator in small things. And I say, the great question during the war, was change of strategy, second front, abandoning the Hague formula for winning, he couldn't change. But in much smaller things, he was a dictator. And he was a dictator because he was allowed to be a dictator. Butler Law, the leader of the Tories in the coalition, actually writes to Balfour saying that Lloyd George is a dictator, but we have accepted dictatorship. And the moral of this is a moral to all governments. Prime Ministers always want to be dictators, but they're dictators to the extent that their cabinets allow them to be dictators. Lloyd George was a dictator in these small things other than the main strategy because his cabinet thought that was the best way of winning the war. If the cabinet is not wanting to be dictated, they would have to be. And it's been the same colleagues in the House of Lords, Captain on tell me that mm. Tony Blair you could pose it with the cabinet and not discuss things. And I always said, and I repeat today, I don't blame Tony Blair for that. That's how prime ministers behave. The cabinet shouldn't have let him do it. So the moral of this is, Lloyd George was dictating small things because the cabinet is allowed it to Secondly, the vote in 1918. Well, remember, there's one the myth about the vote in 1918. Then that women were given the vote, at some women were given the vote, women over the age of 30 were given the vote, because they'd all been seen making munitions during the war, they'd been VADs going to France, and they'd made such a contribution to the war effort, they had to be given the vote. In fact, the House of Commons had passed a resolution giving the women the vote before the war. But the nature of the emancipation was still being argued, with Lloyd George, in my view, making a perfectly sensible point. Until 1918, only men with a property qualification had the vote. And he said in words to the effect of, I'm damned if we're going to give women with a property qualification the vote, and once more reinforcing the national Tory vote. When we have real emancipation, when all men are given the vote, I'm in favour of giving all women the vote. So at first he had doubts about giving women the vote on a limited franchise, but once it was agreed during the war that there would be universal suffrage for men, then he was perfectly happy. To see women not enthusiastic but perfectly happy to see women give us a limited extent and as Biden said before we came in here I constantly want people to discuss or think about this question is personal morality versus political morality which you prefer a Prime Minister whose personal relationship with women is indefensible but gives women the vote. Or a prime minister whose personal relationship with women is impeccable but doesn't give women birth. <laughs> it's a question of whether you want a personal and integrity or a political integrity. And Lord George poses that dilemma every time you think about it. Now, the third question was, how long would you have survived in modern politics? Well, the answer is not very long. Um, he got away with it, as I say, because of his nerve and his concern, or not his concern, his belief, his conviction. He was born to get away with things. He was born to rise above the rules that constrain ordinary mortals. And he took extraordinary risks. I mean, one of them is keeping the letters. Um, well, I've read letters, and I'll give you two examples of letters which are in the book, available in the National Library of Wales. There's one letter of immense pathos in which the lady says, um, I wouldn't ask you for money were it not for the little boy who was spoken I hope you'll return. Uh, I can afford the doctor's fees, but his bones mean he needs very of equipment. And I can't afford the equipment because he's sent me some money. And she talked about when well, she visited him in his house. There's no question about that relationship. There's a letter from a lady called Violet. It was clearly very silly, lady, but Not only is the letter embroidered with Violet, but she said, why can't we use a big part of your screw with chancellor to buy a wonderful tiara? That's what we'll do when we're together. Very pretty clear that this lady had been given to believe have hopes that were unjustified. The fact that he has these relationships, that he keeps the letters, that he is blamed about them, um, is I think in part the reason he got away with it. There were two occasions where newspapers hinted, didn't say, but hinted at impropriety. On both occasions he sued the newspapers, on both occasions it was a hint for justifying, on both occasions the newspapers apologised, on both occasions the newspapers paid a few And I don't want to sound a virus, because, because uh, I would prefer you not to know that I do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's the sheer daring of the thing that you can't help but find it attractive. Uh, I don't have a word to say in support of how he treated most of the women in his life. And many of the reviews have said that without being censorious, it's clear that I disprove. And many of the reviews have said it's clear that I like him less the further on we get in the book. And it's perfectly true. As I always say, I wouldn't want him to marry my sister. Um, so you can't help having a sneaking aberration for this quality, this daring, this dash, this determination, this certainty, this confidence, um, which are absolutely essential qualities in politicians, particularly politicians who go through bad times, and he had enough confidence to, s- to break it all out. Now this doesn't make you an admirable figure, but my God, it makes him an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we live in a time when politicians aren't interesting enough. So we ought to give praise that there an age when politicians did be, do interesting things, even if they were bad things. very <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you very much. Someone over there, and uh, here. Do you think Lloyd George is more like a French politician than an English politician? Uh, you know, when, when you were talking about him, you reminded me of some of the qualities that Clemenceau had, for example, or, or somebody like Danton, if you go back to the French Revolution. He, he was perhaps a revolutionary figure, and, and some of the rhetoric he used reminded me of the kind of rhetoric that a French politician might have used. Thank you. Someone here, please. And then up on the gallery. Thank you.
1: Two separate questions. Uh, One is, how politically happy was he as Prime Minister of the Coalition post-war? Because the accusation of Lloyd George is he always loved power as well as radical, and he didn't mind which way the uh, carriage was going as long as he was in the driving seat. A second
0: different one is, what about the accusation that he would have been Britain's Pétain in 1940? Um, So Lloyd George was the great radical, he crafted this image as being as radical as possible, Um, he spoke in very inflammatory terms and he's uh, one of very few possibly the only political figures to do that and rise to the very highest level in Britain. was that because of his unique qualities, and he'd have done that at any time? Or was it because the Britain of his age was very different uh, to what it is now?
1: Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't know enough about French politics to you know whether he was like a French politician or not, at least modern French politics. I understand the parallel you make with the, the French Revolution. I mean, He was accused of Jacobinism, um, which was an assault on the establishment. Uh, wants to change the net, proper order of things. I am not sure he did want to change the natural order of things. He was a radical. But radicals come into different shapes and sizes. There's the radicals who want to emancipate the working classes and allow them to empower themselves. And the radicals is best represented by Winston Churchill during his little period, when he wants better things for the working classes, but he wants to do them on the working class's behalf, not to give the working class the power to do it. Mm. And the, if there was any theory in the post war, peacetime coalition it was what Lloyd George called Bismarckism. And he would say he made speeches in which he said it was important to provide better welfare benefits because if the state did it, it would be more secure and more stable. And better the state doing it than the trade unions in sitting on it. Bismarckism was what he regarded as the state being benevolent rather than benevolence being imposed on the state by the trade unions and their organizations. Others, particularly my friend and colleague who was kind enough to read the book, Ken Morgan, called it wartime socialism. But I don't think it was socialism at all. It was a desire to impose improvement. And I think true radicalism doesn't impose improvement, it enables the people to bring improvement about themselves. So I don't think the comparison is altogether appetite. Now, secondly, two points. One was how great were its principles? You're quite right in almost quoting Baldwin, who said, Lloyd George would go anywhere, any taxes as long as he was driving um, and I think there's some truth in that after 1918 but he tries to do things after 1918 that are worth doing, the housing program is a good example, he really did believe in helped him to be to live there was an extraordinary, extensive housing program which the first Labour government under my man called John Wheatley, revived in part um, so he still has these beliefs and there's some principles which follow him throughout his life one is rather crude principle, but it's right. He believes that the basic problem of the economy, perhaps of society, is the management and ownership of land. He's obsessed with the idea that landowners often get an incremental benefit without doing anything too early. His great example is the London docks in 1895. <coughs> they decided to expand London docks into what was marshland. Marshland owned by the Duke of Westminster and regarded as zero value. When the London docks expand, in no way influenced by the Duke of Westminster, the land increases from zero to becoming extremely expensive, quite extremely valuable, and the Duke of Westminster enjoys the incremental value, which has done nothing at all to create, but you had always wanted to reform the land, very often arguing that it ought to be taxed according to its value, rather than according to its, rather than according to its actual profitability. It's an idea that's been floating about in the Liberal Party again during the last two or three years. So we are, it does possess some principles, Though they're very limited and very specific. He certainly he doesn't have any ideological view. I mean, he, he hasn't read John Stuart Mill. Um, no, I think, did he didn't suffer very much from that? Since John Stuart Mill is responsible for many mistakes in radicalism. But he doesn't have any ideological corpus of opinion, but he has these instincts. And they're environmental. He believes the land needs to be changed or the ownership needs to be changed because what he saw when he was a boy. In a farming community in mid Wales, and he talked about the landowners and how badly they treated him, how badly the peasants, because they were peasants, and treated. So it's instinctive and environmental, but the beliefs really are there. Now, was he or was he not um, inclined to of rightly describe as possibly the, the British Patton? Well, there's some evidence for this. Um, there's been a great argument about whether he. Uh, went to see Hitler in an idolatrous way or went to see Hitler in an inquiring way, which I think my book solves because his putative daughter gave me three things. One is a picture of him and her together. Her as a little girl of 15. The second is in buying a postcard in Berkshire's garden. And the third is the postcard which is signed with love to Jennifer from Adolf Hitler. Uh, Lloyd George was really taken by Hitler for a part. Not because of many of the master race theories or anti-semitism but because he thought Hitler was a sort of Keynesian. Hitler was building motorways, autobahns. He was putting people to work by investment in public works and it's one of Lloyd George's big ideas. He became more Keynesian than Keynes so it's very taken by Hitler. Now uh, Hitler became very taken by him. The two pages in Mein Kampf which are devoted to praising Lloyd George. So, um, since Lenin also wrote in praise of George. George, George is the only British
0: Prime Minister to be praised by his dictators from both the left and right. <laughs> One of the things that Hitler said
1: about him in the Mein is he was a great politician, the sort of politician who can make people believe lies. That was a commendation for But the question is, had Hitler come here in 1940, would he have been offered and would he have accepted some sort of titular role, some formal role? I think he would. Um, such diverse authorities as uh, John Strachey, uh, Harold Nicholson, and the editor of the new statement, King of having lunch together, written in King Lee Martin's diary, and they consider this, all three agreed that he would. Um, Churchill attacked him in a speech in the House of Commons, saying he wanted to commend his right-honorable old friend a speech which was worthy of the venerable General Patern. And Lord George never went to, to, get to that song again after his Now, I think, had Hitler come here, Lloyd George didn't want that. Lloyd George was basically a patriot. But had, he had it happened, had we been occupied, and had he been offered some tissue of the job, he would have found it irresistible to say yes. But by then he was getting senile, and he might just possibly be forgiven. Not quite, but might just possibly. But I think, had he come to what he would have done. And what was the third? What was, third, what was the
0: third question? Up in, up in the uh, gallery. Oh, pick part? Um, whether Lloyd George's radicalism succeeded because of who he was or because of the times in which he lived? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it succeeded in Edwardian England because the time was right for it in the I wrote a book two books ago called The Edwardians which was intended to scotch the myth. Edwardian England was the long sunset afternoon with ladies in big hats having tea on the terrace while they watched her husband play croquet. Edwardian England is probably the most dynamic period in our history. Everything changes. Science changes, industry changes, politics changes. But even if it's right for the time, you need a catalyst. You need somebody to set a light to the feelings. And I think George George represented a genuine valuable feeling in Edwardian England. And the conclusion of this, I have to say, is had it not been for the catastrophe of the First World War, I think that radical curve, that curve of optimism, that curve of certainty, that curve of belief in Britain's own capabilities would have gone on and on and up and up. The world was immensely changed by the First World War, and the optimism and certainty of of Edwardian Mm -hmm. England was destroyed. So my answer to your question is it was a bit of both. The idea was there, the mood was there, the time was right, but it needed a man what was said about Disraeli in the context, fine combustible, fine combustible stuff on the back needing somebody to set it right. And there was fine combustible stuff in Britain, and George George did set it right. And without him, I don't think he would have happened. Can we imagine another three? Can you imagine
0: another three? Good. Take just a few minutes. If you could make all your questions just one sentence, we'll try and get through everybody if we can. I
1: make no promises about that. No, no,
0: would (laughs) it? Yes, lady here on the corner.
1: Um, Was the Treaty of Versailles a major reason for the start of his descent from his political political peak?
0: Thank you. Was it? Yeah, Treaty of Versailles. Oh, sorry, down here, please. Yes, you.
1: Could you say something about his role in relation to uh, Irish independence, or the Home Rule question, after the First World War, particularly?
0: Thank you. Further back there, I'm working my way across.
1: Is it true that um, Labour politicians um, touch the foot of Lloyd George before they go in to make their maiden speech?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Quick and easy answer to that one. Over here, yeah.
1: question regarding which you touched on his historical reputation, uh, particularly vis-a-vis the other greats of the 20th century. Why is it that uh, in some respects Churchill was also an outsider, who was in the cold in the 1930s, but somehow Churchill's reputation historically seems to stand much higher than Lloyd George's when arguably it's Lloyd George that's the great of the 20th century. So there must be something else other than being anti-establishment that explains that.
0: Yeah, lady down here in the center. Uh,
1: again, on the question of home rule, can you say something about his negotiations, his negotiation tactics with Michael Collins? Yeah, with pleasure. Thank you. pleasure. Okay, okay. right. Thank well, first you the very much. of the Treaty of Versailles. The problem with the Treaty of Versailles is going to be changed by twice starts off with the German election campaign of 1918 and remembering the Supreme Politician who knows that the people want him to be brutal towards the Germans. He doesn't, he doesn't say squeeze the Germans to the quick squeak. Uh, Geddes, the author of the Geddes Act says that. But he does say hang the Kaiser, which you may think is rather more extreme than squeezing the Germans silver a quick squeak. And he starts off thinking there's got to be a vegetable piece because that's what's necessary for the German election campaign. That's what I he then finds himself in Versailles with in the sense the mediator between two different people. The President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, has offered in his 14 points what looks like and in many ways is a reasonable and moderate way of coming to a new conclusion. The President the Prime Minister of France Clemenceau uh, hates the Germans, the mayor of Montmartre during the op- occupation in 1878 and 71. All he wants to do is ensure that Germany is so crippled that they can never attack France again. He wants to totally destabilise Germany, destroy its economy and destroy its political base. And George is somewhere in between these, and vacillates. it is. <coughs> it's interesting that he roars with Woodrow Wilson. He's rather shocked when Comanso says on Woodrow Wilson, why does he need 14 points? God only needed 10. <laughs> but he also, has great believers, in the national interest. I mean, for instance, um, point one of the 14 points is freedom of the seas, which Lloyd George won't contemplate, because it's the tradition of the British Navy that you can stop any, anywhere in the world to find out what's going on. Um, self-determination, he has doubts about, because we want to pinch a lot of the Middle East from the Germans. Uh, so does everybody else want to pinch parts of some of them, some of So he has very mixed emotions about the principles of the 14 points and the practicality. But halfway through, having been to a degree on Comoto's side, he realises the error of his way, So like I say very largely influenced by John Maynard Keynes. But then in Keynes' own words, he finds that Woodrow Wilson isn't supporting him because, as Keynes said, having bamboozled this elderly Presbyterian, he found it impossible to de bamboozle <laughs> So we end up with those priest treaties which George knows is storing up trouble for the future. I quote in the book what he said about it during his view of the negotiations over the Turco-Greek War in 1922. That Had he had his time to come over again, he wouldn't have negotiated that treaty. He wouldn't have given away so much German land and German people to new countries. been this example, I'm not, believe me, I'm not for a moment supporting Hitler's invasion of the Sudetenland. But there were more German, ethnic Germans in the Sudetenland than were a race of any other sort. Lloyd George said right along there this is the way to cause a war. Uh, but he came late to that conclusion and it was too late to change people's minds. That's point Well, Point two and indeed point four is the negotiation with the Irish. Well, perhaps it enables me to reveal the side of his character which I should have revealed earlier on. Lord George, if you step outside his basic principles, losing the balance of prosperity from the rich to the poor, reforming land ownership. The basic principle as a minister is let's get it over with and let's sort it out. Let's end the problem here and there pragmatically without worrying about consequences. So if that's his view Ireland. He has no strong view of Irish rule. If he's a young man. He thinks the Liberal Party is wasting its time over Irish rule. It's blocking other legislation in the House of Lords or the House of Commons. Irish rule to Lloyd George isn't sufficiently important to risk the future of the Liberal Party. He thinks that's an over-keen Irish struggle and he wants this over-the-fanatic to calm down about it. But by the time he's Prime Minister, there's a decision needed to solve the running sore of Irish struggle. So all he wants to do in 1921 is come to an agreement between the two parties. The older unionists are implicated by the promise that the Wilbur Partition And there will be a number of counties which remain essentially part of the United Kingdom. The nationalists and republicans won't accept either petition or the oath of allegiance to the king. So Lloyd George meets them in London. And he lies to them. There's no question of oaths. He persuades them that the oath of allegiance, which is watered down, isn't as reported as it might (coughs) be. But he also lies to them. He said, look, we'll give the Ulster Unionists six counties and we'll have a boundary commission which redraws the boundaries of the southern counties in the six to give the predominantly Irish town, the predominantly Catholic towns the villages to the south. And when that happens, three of the counties will no longer be viable because half of them have gone to the south and they can't contain themselves on their own. So they'll choose to go to the south. And when the three counties go to the south, the other three counties won't be viable either, so they'll all eventually come to you. And I promise I'll make that come about by a boundary commission redrawing the line between Catholic Ireland and Protestant Ireland. And he never means to do it, and he never will do it, and he never does do it, and he never does. It, he never does. But there's also parts about that process which are, to forgive the anecdote, typically Lloyd George. he persuaded Arthur Griffiths, a simple but good man, to have a private conversation with him. And he's persuaded Arthur Griffiths that he will sign whatever agreement Lloyd George says is ultimately necessary. Arthur Griffith to write that on a piece of paper at a crucial moment in the <coughs> negotiations. He said, and oh, by the way, he said, I sent this suit to the cleaners the other day and I found in the pocket something I'd forgotten about, a piece of paper signed by Arthur Griffiths, which well, he says he's going to support the negotiations come what may. This first cool that he has you know, his little climax. But then he also does something which I can't explain, but so you may be able to. The Irish delegation is still havering whether they'll sign the document or not. And he says this, I have here two letters. And sitting in this chair, they have a whole bunch of letters. And he says, this one says we've got to an agreement and there's peace in Ireland. This one says they won't agree and it's all out war. And he says there's a dispatch rider waiting outside Dering Street to take one letter to to Houston. There's a train, in quotes, under steam which will take you to Liverpool. And there's a destroyer waiting in Liverpool to take the letter to Ireland, the commander chief Now, which letter do you want to go, peace or war? And not one of the Irishmen, including that great man, Michael Collins, says, what's all this nonsense about dispatch riders and trains and destroyers? Why the hell don't you found the Irish? <laughs> and, uh, why, don't, why don't you sign a telegram? And they're, they're caught in the drama of the two letters. <laughs> and they say, okay, let it be peace. Yeah. And Michael Pollan, and Abby Smithson, the negotiator, says to Michael Collins, you realize that by signing this agreement, giving most of the Irish home rule, I'm signing my political death warrant. And Michael Collins says, yes. And I'm signing my death warrant. It's an example of Lloyd George's cunning. It is not an example of what his technique, often as a minister and certainly as president of the trade, here's a problem, let's solve it. Let's not worry about the marriage Let's solve it. And that, I think, leaves us with one other point, which I can't read my own writing. What's the question number three? It says book, boots, boots. Sorry, I'm Sorry. Touching it. the foot. Yes, P- okay.
0: touching the statue of Lloyd George oh, on oh, going yes. into the House no, of, of Commons. Really. <laughs> um, <laughs> and
1: I've never touched it in my life. <laughs> 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 and I made a speech 45 years ago. Um, but let me you. I, I wonder why it because no one said foot boots. Huh? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's very important to recognize the relationship between the two men. Um, and the a subsidiary question which said, Why do we still admire Winston Churchill when <coughs> Lord George is arguably more important or m- more admirable or more something? Well, I think the answer is that Lord George would have been just as admired had he given up the premiership at the moment of his greatness. As I say, applause in the House come and walk across the dead markets, man who won the war, go away. We forget that Winston Churchill had a hideous period of Prime Minister from 1951 to 1954 when everything went wrong. Um, because Lloyd Winston Lost the election, and therefore was out of politics for two or three years, just basking in the glory of and genuine glory, deserved glory, at the moment safe civilization, at least articulated the spirit of safe civilization. I think there's also the fact that George's personal shortcomings reflected on him, even to people who don't really understand what the details were. There's a general feeling, everybody who said George, there's something wrong about it, something unpleasant about it that tarnished image immensely. But as my final word, the comparison between the two is very important, because for many years, Lloyd George was a senior partner in the arrangement in the great radical years of 1908 to 1914. Lloyd George was leading the way, and Churchill was following him, and Robert Booleby talked about 1940, when um, Lloyd George and Churchill met behind seen each other for much of the previous three years. And both may you know, Churchill's great Two different systems of techniques, but I'm with whoever it was down here who said the word George is just as important in our political history. Politically, just as a figure. Perhaps not personally so, but it's made the figure in British history who really needs to be rehabilitated. And I hope I've played a very small part in bringing that around. Thank you all.
0: you'll want me on your behalf to thank Roy Hattersley very much indeed for a fascinating time um, you've answered innumerable questions very fully but I think illuminated for all of us a very interesting and rather neglected period of British history um, illuminated is the word for your description of lloyd george who i find is a much more comprehensible figure now having heard your exposition of the way in which he handled a difficult and tricky life um, and his own difficult and tricky personality but um, the book is clearly fascinating it's on sale outside and roy will be signing copies So I think that is the next stage of the evening's activity. But we do all thank you very much indeed for what's been a very interesting presentation. Thank you very much.